What does filmed for IMAX mean? It isn't just a movie that'll look great on IMAX's screens. It means that hiding from a sandstorm feels like fear in every flicker. And every triumph is felt in every sound wave. And the things we've only imagined, you can truly experience those too. That's what filmed for IMAX means. Get tickets to experience Dune Part 2 now and IMAX's exclusive expanded aspect ratio. Little Wing is now streaming on Paramount+. Plus. I'm in a period of emotional upheaval. Is that all the, oh, I don't care crap? A little adventure. Where are you going? I'm going to steal a bird from the Russian pigeon mafia. Let's do it. Goes a long way. <laughs> Starring Brooklyn Prince with Kelly Riley and Brian Cox. Life can hurt, but life is sweet. Little Wing, rated PG-13. May be inappropriate for children under 13. Now streaming exclusively on Paramount+. Plus. Better Call Paul is a production of Lola Media. Say hi, Lola. Hey, everyone. This is Paul Sarker from Better Call Paul. Just wanted to remind you that the show is intended for entertainment purposes only and is not legal advice. I am not your lawyer unless we separately agree for me to represent you. And the views expressed by Mesh and me are solely our own. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to Better Call Paul, the show where we discuss the legal and business side behind the scenes of Hollywood sports and entertainment, and this week, submarines. I'm your co-host, Paul Sarker, former Marvel lawyer and current big law media attorney. And I'm your other co-host, Mesh Lakani. Paul, you know, I want to kick this off. I've had to stay inside a little bit this week because, you know, I got I got a little sick, had to isolate, and uh, I found some pretty entertaining stuff on TV. And I'm pretty happy with it, but now I finished them and I don't know what to do. But I will say that for those of you who haven't seen it yet, The Bear is one of the most incredible shows on TV. It's on Hulu. Season two just dropped. Absolutely incredible. 100% on Rotten Tomatoes. I would agree with it. There's also the Arnold doc. There's Chris Hemsworth Extraction. I saw Extraction 2, yeah. I haven't seen Extraction 2 yet. It's, It's on my things to do while I'm just hanging out at home. I saw it. I mean, it's pretty insane. Some of the fight scenes. Um, and I got to say, so like the Russo brothers have made my favorite Marvel movies, Winter Soldier, Avengers uh, 3, TV Avengers saga. 4. Yeah. And they just like, they're so good at action sequences. I mean, like some of it is, I wouldn't say it's like intellectual, but I would say it's like an awesome action. Yeah, it's like old school action, you know? Old school action. And the first one, because it took place in Bangladesh and they were speaking Bengali, yeah. like a lot of the characters, like, you know, it resonated with me. And then I told my parents to watch it. My dad was like, this is way too violent. Like, I don't know what you're doing making me watch this. <laughs> but yeah, it's good. I'd recommend it. I'm gonna. I'm excited to watch it. The Baird season two is awesome. Look, if you like high octane drama with a little bit of comedy in it and you really like restaurants and you want to see the ins and outs of it it's such a freaking good show and jeremy allen white and the entire cast so good i binged it i'm bummed that it's over again but man it was really really good and i would say that the thing that i'm enjoying the most right now and it's too short is the arnold doc on netflix that was actually directed by leslie chilcott who did an inconvenient truth And man, Arnold Schwarzenegger is, even now, he is just so like, he's so good on camera. What I liked about it, and again, watch it, I don't want to do any spoilers, but he's very into like talking about things that are controversial about himself and, you know, mistakes that he made. And it's really, really well done. If you like Arnold 
from the Pumping Iron days to obviously Terminator 2 is one of my favorite movies ever made. And then, of course, him as a politician, you know, like it's it's actually pretty incredible. And they split it into these three parts. And yeah, man, it's awesome. Arnold Schwarzenegger is the man. I will check it out. I'm a big fan of his, and I actually didn't know about that, so thanks for letting me know. Oh, it's so good. Last night, Jess and I, we had date night, which we try to do every week if we can. And so we went to see Here Lies Love, which is a Broadway uh, musical, sort of like a disco pop musical about the life of Imelda Marcos. So Jessica's Filipino, and the whole cast is Filipino. So like when it got announced that there was a musical with an entirely Filipino cast, like it was, you know, must see for us. And then the fact that it's about Imelda Marcos's life, which is a very interesting subject matter. And then so, another- so give, us that, like, give us that background. So Imelda Marcos was the wife and she eventually, I think she took pretty significant control over the Philippines when her husband got ill. So Ferdinand Marcos, he was a senator, then he became, he was elected the president of the Philippines, and then he sort of became a dictator. And he instituted martial law in the 80s. And eventually it was, you know, it was not a great time for the Philippines. I think if you talk to most of the Filipino people, while they did a lot of high profile projects, they spent a lot of time overseas. You know, they bought mansions on Fifth Avenue. They spent a lot of time in Paris. She reportedly had like thousands of shoes. That's how I came to know her when I was a kid, because like, There was a story done about her like excessive wardrobe. And so the country that was poverty stricken where a lot of people were living in shanties, Marcos did build the first hospital, but at the same time, they embezzled billions of dollars from the country. They lived a lot of time overseas and they were dictators. So generally speaking, their rule was not viewed favorably, although there are people that support them. And their son is now the president of the Philippines, which is something that was actually very controversial for a lot of people. So their son, Bong Bong Marcos, won an election last year. And so Imelda, it's a story of her life. I think one of the criticisms about the play, and I was about to say, it's David Byrne and Fatboy Slim yeah. did the music. David, yeah, David when, Byrne. Yeah, I was talking, reading about it, that's cool. That's super Yeah, so cool. David Byrne's like a musical genius, uh, talking heads, EGOT, so he's got the Emmy, Grammy, right, Oscar, right. Tony. And he wrote this, I think, 10 years ago. And it's making its Broadway debut now. It was off-Broadway in New York, and it was in Seattle and London. And so it actually hasn't officially opened yet. The show opens July 20th. So they're in Yeah, you saw the preview, right, right? Yeah, we saw the preview. But it was fun. I mean, it's like very interactive, immersive. It's like a club vibe. And so one of the other controversies is that there's no orchestra. And this is the first Broadway musical to not have an orchestra. Now they're claiming, David Byrne and the show producers are claiming that that's because it's karaoke themed and they thought it would make more sense to have a DJ and let people sing along and they didn't necessarily need live performers. But the AFM 802, which is the musicians union in New York, has come against it and said like, no, they're trying to break live music. They're trying to undermine the importance of live music. And so there was a compromise reach where there's actually 12 musicians. Three of the actors play instruments at the end. There's like Mm. a final song, but it's very much like dance club. You know, there's a DJ playing the tracks. Yeah, but I appreciate them trying to do something different. Like, why not? I mean, they could have had an orchestra and they might not have had room for it in the venue, but like, I like the fact, I like when musicals have orchestras and like live bands. I think that does add to No, totally, totally. But yeah, so they're trying to do something a little different. And honestly, I thought the musical was great. I thought the performances were awesome. Ariel Jacobs played Imelda Marcos, and she was awesome. She's been in Aladdin and other things, but I had not heard of her, but I'm not a Broadway guy necessarily. 
But I would say, so one of the criticisms is they made Imelda seem kind of like an ingenue. Like she came from a small town. She was a beauty queen. Mm. She met Ferdinand. And she actually met Ninoy Aquino first, who was the senator that the Marcoses assassinated because he was basically like the foil. He was the man for the people. He wanted transparent politics. He wanted government to work for the people. He wanted to bring resources to the people that were underserved instead of you know having the president and his wife live lavishly overseas. So he was basically the, the leader of the opposition and he criticized a lot of what Marcos did and he was exiled. He was actually in prison for seven years and exiled. And when he came back from the US when Ferdinand was like, you know, on his deathbed, he was assassinated. So, um, but what the, the play didn't really talk about, and David Byrne did all the research for this, but the play didn't really talk about Amelda as like a calculating, scheming, deliberate politician, someone who was a strategist. Right. It really made it seem like she was more just like a beauty who got swept into this circumstance and just like didn't have any control over the circumstances that she was in or the decisions that were made. And I don't know that that's true. I mean, no one knows. Amelda's still alive today, and there was a documentary done about her. It was released in 2021, and she was interviewed, and she was like, I thought I was doing the right thing. I thought I was a great leader for the country. Everything I did, I did out of love. The question is whether she was just out of touch with what people really needed or whether she thought she was doing the right thing and whether intent is really how we should gauge these things. But, I mean, anytime you declare martial law, you assassinate your opponents, I think you have to be viewed critically. I generally like very intrigued by the concept of this when I was reading about it. And I mean, there seems to be a whole bunch of like new Broadway shows that are like unique and interesting and fresh. So this is one on the list that I'd like to check out. Well, Broadway's on an upswing. So year over year, both in terms of gross for the past week and admissions, they're up 12% over Last year, compared to something like theatrical box office, it's it's still a drop in the bucket. It's sure. like, I don't know, 33 million, 260,000 attendees in a week. But I think it's an important part of entertainment. And it's one that we don't often talk about on the show because maybe the dollars are small, but there's no substitute for it. And the performers are so talented and it's a super fun time. Like it's 90 minutes, no intermission. It's always good. Yeah. Fast paced, a lot of singing, a lot of dancing. Oh, that's cool. 90 minutes straight. 90 no minutes straight. And they involve the crowd. So like they get you up, they get you dancing. There are floor seats where you're actually immersed with the actors and oh, like cool. they're performing cool, cool. all around you. And you can even get into the show. Like you can be like they'll do a little close up with you. And it, it's totally worth seeing, I would say. Yeah, I was reading about Once Upon a One More Time, which I, oh, the Britney I didn't Spears? know was a yeah. thing. Yeah, new musical, fairy tale musical with songs by Britney Spears. Yeah, look, there was a really nice run of all these new shows that came out, and obviously everyone talks about them for a while. Like there was obviously the Hamilton era and Dear Evan Hansen, and it seems like now we're coming into a whole new bucket of, of shows. And I, I guess I was reading like Broadway season so far has brought in about 128 million with about yeah. a little over a million in, in attendance at an 86% capacity. That sounds like good numbers to me. Yeah, I want to say there was maybe a couple empty seats last night, but not many. It was pretty packed and we really enjoyed it. We It was a great, great time. Awesome, man. Well, I'd love to check that out. But uh, yeah, let's take a break and uh, let's get back and we'll talk about what everyone was talking about this week. Ocean Gate Submarine. It's Kate. 
Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. So, Mesh, as you said, the story of the week, which kind of died down abruptly because it was literally the number one story on social media, on regular media, uh, on the internet. And it was the Titan submarine search, right? So uh, for those that didn't know, although I don't see how that's possible, there were five very privileged people, two billionaires, Shazada Dawood and his son, Suleiman, who was, I think, the son of the richest person in Pakistan. Paul Henry, who's a French diver, Hamish Harding, who's a British billionaire, and then Stockton Rush, who's the CEO of Oceangate. They were on a mission to explore the Titanic, the depths of the Titanic. They were in an Oceangate submersible. They went down and they went missing. And so they lost contact with the navigation on the surface of the ocean after about uh, an hour and 45 minutes. The dive, I think, was only supposed to be a couple hours. And so it launched this incredible search and rescue mission over several days, because I think they had 96 hours of oxygen for the five people right, right, in the right. in the vessel. And so the clock was ticking because once it became like a four-day search, it would switch from being search and rescue to basically just like recovering whatever was there. Right. And at some point on Thursday, the Coast Guard said that they declared everyone dead because they found debris from the vessel on the ocean floor about a third of a mile from the Titanic. And they released something that the Navy found Earlier, they said they had heard a sound that sounded like the sub collapsing. Like an implosion? They weren't, it wasn't definitive, but when they played that sound and they saw the debris, it was consistent with the fact that the sub imploded. And, you know, I, you can hear the number, but it's really hard to envision or appreciate the intense pressure that's down there, like two, three miles below the surface of the ocean. It's like, what, like millions of pounds per square foot? Yeah, I was watching some video. I mean, here's the thing. This thing not only was all over the news, it was all over Twitter. It was all over TikTok. I mean, people were building games and stuff on Roblox uh, simulations. I think I read something where it was it's the equivalent of like a an elephant putting its foot on top of a dime or maybe even like a, a dinosaur putting their foot over, or, or on top of a dime. I mean, the pressure is insane. And obviously the, the criticism around Ocean Gate is around, uh, you know, safety concerns where they sh- should have they been going that far down. Did they have the right equipment for it? I mean, there's lots of criticism around that. Randomly enough, last weekend I was sitting with a friend of mine and a group of people we were having dinner and a buddy of mine is the um, founder of a company that essentially is mapping the ocean floor. I mean, super interesting. And they, they're building their own subs. So he was telling us about it and he was telling us how hard it is to do this. Only a handful of people are able to do it. And even like telling us how far they can go down. And it, it 
doesn't sound like much. We're talking like a few hundred meters. We're talking 9,000 pounds per square inch. Yeah, that's in, it's that's insane. And we also started, and I immediately was like, hey, have you talked to James Cameron? Because James Cameron's done like over 33 deep dives to explore the Titanic. And obviously James Cameron was on TV recently criticizing Ocean Gate and their safety concerns. And it was just weird that all of this happened in a span of a week that I just so happened to be talking to someone who was an expert at this. It is crazy how much attention it took over, you know, the news. And I wonder if that's one, you know, a lost submarine is a lost submarine, but it's really more a handful of very, very um, potentially influential people on this sub and everyone looking for them, you know, versus if it was just a research sub. Things can go on in the background and it doesn't become like a mainstream story until there's something that's atypical about it. Like if you think about a couple of weeks ago, there were wildfires in Ontario and then yeah. for two or three days, there was a lot of smoke in New York and cities that's in the right. East Coast, right. like Philly, DC, and everyone's like, oh my God, the earth is ending. But we actually... We've been in an era of like catastrophic fires for the past 10 years, but out of sight, out of mind. And then once the smoke hits a major metropolitan area, people wonder about it. And so with this, I think it's similar because there's this era of extreme tourism, whatever, billionaire tourism, that people are spending half a million dollars to take a trip to space or a quarter million to go to the bottom of the ocean or, you know, 200,000 to get to the top of Mount Everest. And it's like this whole opportunity or world of opportunities that are open to the top, you know, fraction of the 1% of people yeah, on earth yeah, who yeah. just have resources that can like live experiences that most of us can only dream about. And so James Cameron said that he knew on Monday, these he, he had a very strong suspicion on Monday that these folks were dead. And he, right. I, I didn't realize he had made 33 trips Three, yeah, to the Titanic in the course of his that's career. And obviously, you know, he made the film and it's a very important piece of like our collective culture. And I was, you know, talking about this with others. And I was like, you know, a lot of times that's how these things work, right? Like 500 years ago to get from Europe to the new world, you had to be a king or a queen or financed by them. Now, you know, people can take a plane and get here in a matter of hours. And that's how things evolve. And so maybe space exploration, ocean exploration will be accessible yeah. to the masses in the future. But right now it's the playground of the billionaires. So that's a good point. Uh, there was a, um, I, I was listening to a podcast, Big Technology by Alex Kantrowitz, and he was talking about some blog post where this guy was writing that without people with money, with resources taking these risks, you know, we wouldn't advance, whether it's industrial or, you know, even think about the earliest computers that were created and how expensive they were, or the earliest cell phones, they were super, super expensive. And eventually it becomes, you know, more money goes into it more technology goes into it, the prices come down. I mean, that's a, it's a whole separate topic, but yes, like now in this case, this brought the news. I mean, people have been talking about subs for a while in a kind of small community. I mean, going back to James Cameron, James Cameron was on a podcast. And I think I mentioned this before in a previous episode, he was on Smartless where he just talked about, yeah, I do these movies to essentially fund my expeditions of the ocean. Like yes, right. it's expensive to build submarines. We always say this is not a political podcast, but it, it, it does beg the question of who pays for the search and rescue. And we don't even know That's how much totally it costs. Legit. That's never yes. going to be disclosed, my guess. But it wouldn't surprise me if the U.S. taxpayer pays for the search yes. and rescue. And according to the Coast Guard, they say that Section 46 USC 2110A5 
which is a statute in the U.S., prohibits the Coast Guard from collecting a fee for search and rescue missions. So it is their policy not to seek reimbursement from anyone at, that is the subject of a search and rescue mission. And so I don't know how much this thing costs, but they had aircraft, they had helicopters, they had really expensive equipment, and it took several days. They searched an area twice the size of Connecticut, right, on the ocean floor. So just imagine how much resources that is. And they were looking for billionaires, but they're not going to charge OceanGate and they're not going to charge billionaires for this. And then I think, you know, if you don't build the cost of if it goes wrong into the price of the ticket, it's an externality that you're forcing onto the average taxpayer where like people are struggling with inflation, people are struggling with food, with energy costs, with gas, with rent, with mortgages, whatever. Why should they be paying to rescue these people who have billions of dollars? I, I mean, I could see someone saying, that's not necessarily my position uh, on I it. I mean, but that I do was think- what people were saying. You know, immediately right. the narrative is like, well, why do we care so much about these billionaires? And like, there was a lot of toxic conversations that were happening all over the internet. I mean, memes and people making fun of it. And like, look, this happens all the time. But um, like, it's not really more about that they're billionaires. It's more like, is it the company's fault that they skipped steps and take shortcuts that not only, you know, lost people's lives, but then caused all this other havoc, you know, amongst search and rescue. And and I think that's whether lawsuits are going to happen after that. We'll see. It seems like they probably will. So Stockton Rush, there was a text exchange. So there's a a Las Vegas billionaire, Jay Bloom, I believe, who shared some text messages he had with Stockton. So Jay and his son were supposed to be on that sub, and they ended up opting out because they had safety concerns about the submarine. And he shared text messages where he was going back and forth with Stockton about concerns that he had about the thing. And Stockton basically said, yeah, there's risk, but we're going to be too deep for a whale to eat us. They can't handle the PSI down there. And by the way, our vessel is bigger than their mouth, so they're not going to be able to eat us. And he's and he said it was in other contexts. He said it was safer than crossing the street, safer than riding in a helicopter. So he was maybe a little bit delusional about the risk, but it does <laughs> yeah, seem yeah, 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 like yeah. there were flaws identified in the construction, in the design, in the materials that were ignored. And I think that does expose them to legal liability. But the question is maybe not for the search and rescue, maybe for the loss of life. It goes to show like our culture right now and our, you know, you were just saying earlier, when something's an anomaly, we pay more attention to it. Everyone is essentially trying to profit off of that, whether it's, you know, people writing posts or putting videos up because around the same time, it wasn't the same exact time, I think it was a week before, there was a fishing vessel that sank and, you know, there were 750 refugees and migrants on it from Pakistan, Syria, Egypt, Palestine, and only like 100 people were rescued. Obama actually commented on this. He's like, where are we in the world? We're not even talking about this. Right. But what we're talking about more is not only the submarine, then what ended up taking over the news was the fact that like one of the passengers' stepson goes to a Blink-182 <laughs> concert when the search is happening and posts it on Instagram saying, my family would have wanted this for me, and then gets into an online spat with Cardi B who's criticizing him, and that takes over the freaking airwaves. Right. You know what I mean? It's, I mean, and yes, did I read that? I did. I was curious to see what Cardi B said, and I am also like a, I, again, I'm a product of this thing that we create. It is sad when you think about it at the end of the day. You see, there's so much vitriol about bearing the cost of migrants in like New York or Texas or Florida yeah, 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 or whatever yeah. these major cities, but there is not as much for bearing the cost of rescuing or trying to rescue billionaires that 
want, you know, want to live these dreams. Yeah. And, and then when we think about it from like a financial standpoint, billionaires, they probably have family offices and companies and philanthropies and all these sorts of things that they run. And then you have the CEO of the company who is going on, you know, putting these subs underwater. I'm like, there's probably a lot more that goes between those few people in terms of like potential impact. I don't know how they run their businesses or their offices, but yeah, I'm sure people were freaking out. Like, you know, what is the, what's the, um, key man clause, you know what I'm saying? Like in that case, you had three key man clauses potentially in like one submarine. Oh yeah. I mean, there's, and I don't want to be in such that there's a change of control. There's all sorts of, I mean, who's running the company now? What insurance did they have? Estate planning. I mean, lives were lost and that doesn't change, but there is some assumption of risk when you do something like this, right? It's like you're going where very few people have gone. It's incredibly dangerous conditions. Like we said, 9,000 PSI. The risk is huge. Although apparently Stockton said there hadn't been an issue in 35 years uh, of non-military submarine activity. And James Cameron, like he, this is like a weekend trip for him. He's done it 33 times. But yeah, it's 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 really intense. And and others have said for civilization to flourish on Mars or a moon of another planet, yes, right? Yes, like yes, yes, people yes. will not make that trip back. Some people are gonna have to be the first yeah, to, yeah, take, yeah. to take that risk. And someone will make it, and but many probably will not, and that's what it, that's the cost of progress. Yeah, and I think that's a legitimate. You have to look at all sides of this. One could be like, well, why do we care about all these billionaires? Like, well, we should care about. Uh, again, sitting with a friend of mine who was teaching me about ocean floor mapping and that it hasn't been done before yet, we're throwing rockets into space. Like, there is a lot to learn from the depths that we cannot see, and I and I I think it's commendable for those who are doing this and in terms of like exploring the ocean, building submarines that can do that, building subs. Yeah. And and to sum it up, I think you're right about the, you know, the space travel thing. Like it's going to be a very expensive ticket to eventually go to the moon or go to the Mars as an individual, but it does push us forward in like a, in terms of like technological advancement. Um, and it eventually does bring the cost down. If we think about anything in history, the cost and the reliability honest. improves, right? Like once you yes, once exactly. you do it over and over, you establish like a launch pad on the moon. Then you're not dealing with getting out of Earth's gravity or a launch pad somewhere else. I mean, once you terraform Mars or whatever, whatever it is, I mean, it gets a lot easier to colonize it or to inhabit yeah. it. So the explorers, they take the risk. And that's why there's many rewards that they get if they are successful. Well, let's take a break, Paul, and we'll get back and we'll talk about something a bit more uplifting or maybe not, but what's going on in the US box office right now? So Mesh, we talked about this last week. You saw Flash, you said it was- Boo. Mediocre? <laughs> Mediocre. It was, it was, I think the more I thought about it, the more I was like, what did I just watch? Okay, so you weren't particularly complimentary, but you were like, it's not a disaster, but it is actually. Yes, I, I think that's right. People have come out and, and said, financially, it's been a disaster. It's it's definitely a financial disaster. And I think general fandom is like, this wasn't great. And it was both from like everyone telling everyone that it was going to be great. And then all the issues with the That's story the and thing, CGI right? The, I mean, That's what else are they going to say? But the Warner yeah. executives were like, this is the greatest superhero movie ever. Yeah, they have to. <laughs> well, do they? I don't know. I mean, because you can't say that to people over and over without 
it being true some of the time. Yeah, it's like crying wolf. I think in this case, they're like, we just need to get people to watch that. We put so much into this movie. And, and I'll say this, like, I think a part of it was that, look, I think people are a bit over mediocre superhero movies. I think Ezra Miller has a ton of controversy behind him. So th there could be that. And, and it impacted um, the marketing too. Like they couldn't do a traditional. Yes, they couldn't. You, yeah, you, they couldn't do traditional. Yeah. yeah. Like you'd want, you know, you ideally want to see them all about and out there, but it wasn't just the flash that didn't do well. Pixar's elemental. Uh, I think it's one of the worst performing Pixar movies. If anything, the lowest three days start in Pixar's history. And here's how I feel about that. Like, the commercials kept popping up in all the movies I've been watching so far. And it's it just feels like the repetitive storyline that they just took some of the other things like Inside Out and this and they just put it together as one. Like, I just didn't care to uh, watch it. And normally Pixar, you're like, oh, my God, Wally, incredible. Like, it's just it's different and new. And it seems like people just want something fresh. We're a little bit old. Like we're kind of done with people giving us the same stuff over and over again. Unless it's Spider-Man. No, Unless I mean, it's I John think, Wick 4. <laughs> right. I think there's an element of that, right? So I think that there's two separate things. I actually have heard Elemental was actually good. I mean, that Rotten sure. Tomato yeah. score is not that as far as, because Pixar is judged on a curve because they have like all their movies are in the hundreds or the nine, like almost a hundred or in the nineties. So it's rare. I mean, Pixar has a handful of misses like Cars 2 and Lightyear and maybe Elemental, but generally their movies are really good and they have like a meaning and they can be interpreted. They're meant for kids, but they also have a second meaning for adults and they apply to both audiences, but generally they're directed towards families. And the other thing with Pixar is during the pandemic, Disney used Pixar films to leverage the growth of Disney plus. And the question was always going to be, is this going to cannibalize box office for Pixar? Because do you want to take your family? Let's say you have two, three kids you want to take them all to the theater? It's an expensive proposition. If you already have Disney Plus, maybe it's easier. You know, they can go to the bathroom. You know, they, you can take breaks. Huh. You just stay at home, watch the that. thing. So I don't know that long term, like, I don't know if you can put that genie back in the bottle, so to speak, about Pixar's box office. We'll see. But I agree with you on the flash. And this isn't really surprising given DC's track record. Yeah, DC's track record. They've been hit or miss and they've had a fair amount of misses. And it's not like this was done by Gunn and Saffron. So it's the same creative decision makers that have had middling movies. So I don't know why people are expecting yeah. like a different result every time. Well, and going on your comment about Pixar, we didn't see that with Spider-Man. We didn't see it with Super Mario Brothers in terms of the turnout was massive and Spider-Man is still killing it. I think honestly, it's a great movie, but I do think like they did something different, even though it's a Spider-Man film and you know, Super Mario did something different with, I guess, video games and, and Mario, which the first, you know, I, it's hard to really describe what's going on. But I, I will say, I mean, there's a few there's a few movies that are coming out. I don't know if they're going to be massive box office hits, but the one that I want to see do really well is Jennifer Lawrence's No Hard Feelings. That could um, win the weekend. The, it's, it, it's her, the raunchy comedy is back. And like, that is, I love those movies. Like, that's kind of like, you want to go and just, Get your mind off. Bridesmaids is and, one of and, and our favorite movies. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You got Bridesmaids, you got Super Bat, like that type of style. This feels like everyone loves Jennifer Lawrence. You know, she was just on Hot Ones, um, the 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 wings, the hot wing show on YouTube. She was phenomenal. You like her. She's a movie star. I want to go watch this movie. I might go see it. And then the other movie you have is Asteroid City, 
with Wes Anderson. And we'll see, you know, I, I after after French Dispatch, I don't know if I trust going into a Wes Anderson movie. Like, I, I think I'm going to get the, the old switcheroo. I know some people love that movie, but I fell asleep and then I walked out. Um, so we'll see. I'm still going to watch both these movies, but I'm just... Okay, yeah. So you're, you're going to... You're, yeah, I mean, it's a um, huge cast for Asteroid City. Jess and I were actually invited to a, a screening like two weeks ago. I wasn't able to make it, but Jess went. She loved it. Oh, great. Um, oh, she did like it. Yeah, did Jess like did. a French Dispatch? She loves Wes Anderson, though. There, there's like, you know, she is... His, his aesthetic... It's not even really about the movie at that point. I mean, if the movie's great, that's a plus. I mean, the Grand Budapest Hotel was a lovely movie. It was, Moonrise Kingdom was great in terms of the newer ones. I just couldn't get over French Dispatch. Um, maybe I'll go watch Asteroid City. It's it's playing at the Williamsburg Cinema. I can just walk over, check it out. But if Jess liked it, I'll take that into consideration. Yep, 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 yep. Well, anytime you're invited to a screening, kind of like you like. I mean, movie. that's pretty sick, you know. Yeah. <laughs> uh, um, switching gears to Secret Invasion. Mesh, I haven't seen it, uh, but I know the cast is also really incredible. I mean, they Dude, have top-notch um, cast, top-notch cast. Khaleesi, Amelia Clark, Don Cheadle, Olivia Coleman, who Ol- I remember. Olivia Coleman, Sam Jackson, um, Ben Mendelsohn. I mean, it's like a really big cast. Dur- Dur- uh, what's his name? D- uh, Dermot uh, Mulroney, um, yeah. who is really great. He was in. Uh, Batman, The Dark Knight Rises, and a few other. He's always been like a great character. Um, yeah, look, it's it's been a while since Marvel's released like a show with some of these older characters in it, like Fury, Nick Fury, and Samuel L. Jackson. Um, Maria Hill. I, surprisingly, M- Maria Hill. I didn't know this was even out until, again, I was homesick this week. And I'm like, oh, cool. I'll check it out. And um, I got very, very bored. And then I finished it for the sake of this conversation, and it got decent. I'd say that it's like a mediocre spy thriller in the first episode with like a, a villain that I don't really care for, but I'm intrigued. I'll watch it. That That's what I got to say about that. One other story that crept up out of Secret Invasion was that AI was used in the opening credits, the beginning entry sequence to the show. Method Studios is the VFX house that made it, and they basically used algorithms or AI to create the alien-looking morphing effect of the opening credits. And in the era of the WGA strike, potentially the SAG strike has been somewhat controversial, although they did say that no artists were displaced in the creation of the credits and the AI was merely used as a tool not to replace anyone's job. Honestly, it's so funny because I read this story and then I forgot about it when I was watching the show and I'm I'm a skip credits type, type of guy. Like... If the credits are too long, I'm gonna skip through it. I I just looked. I'm like, oh, cool. They use some like visual animation. It looks okay. Where I sit on this is like, obviously, being in tech and dabbling in AI a little bit. Uh, I'm always curious to see how things pop up. It goes back to like experimentation. Even when we talked about the subs, like these are tools that essentially enhance studios or enhance people's time. I mean, here's what I would say about this. For those out there who haven't used Midjourney or, or Stability AI, where you can produce like visuals, it is really, really interesting. And like I said, you use that as a tool to like, essentially, if you have a, have a you know a super suit on or something. With the criticism right now that's happening in VFX and you know the amount of hours that people are working and like the budgets that they have to pitch to studios to get these things done, and obviously like budgets go down, but they still need the work and there's like tons of hours and they're overworking hours like. 
I look at it like this is a tool that studios and VFX houses can use to their advantage to free up people's time to do other things. That's how I would look at it versus like replacing people. Well, that's the sales pitch. I mean, I think it's it's a tool, <laughs> not a yeah. not a replacement, but who, it's a slippery slope. But I see, you know, I, I see Marvel's point here. It's like, okay, you criticize us for driving our VFX houses, you know, for being too demanding and expecting yeah, too, too demanding. much. And then- we try to give them a tool to lighten the load and maybe help them hit their budget, and you criticize us for that too. It's like, how how do they win, right? Like You don't win. <laughs> yeah. I, I think what happens is that people, it just becomes, it, it's like editing tools, you know what I mean? Like, right. um, like it's like Final Cut Pro. Like, it, yeah, Final Cut Pro for like editing video, it, cha- it, it changes the game and like, you know, the investment into VFX, it changes the game and then you give more access to people. If you're like a filmmaker with a low budget, you're an indie filmmaker, you know, you potentially have something to use for credits or maybe some visual effects down the line. I mean, look, it's not going to be great right now, but this goes back into without using it, without pushing it forward, we won't have these tools that will essentially enable us to do things potentially cheaper uh, and then potentially just opens up the hours. And I get it. It's a sales pitch. I'm very much in on that sales pitch. I think in this case, like I didn't even really pay attention to the opening credits. You could have told me it was made with AI or some, you know, funky artist, and I wouldn't, I, I don't think I would have known. I skipped the credits anyways. But yeah, I think, you know, budgets are high right now. And I think it goes back to Secret Invasion. Mediocre opening credits, I guess, is the criticism because it was uh, AI was used. And I would say right now, mediocre show that has some potential. I'm a Samuel L. Jackson fan. It's nice to see Amelia Clark back in it. So yeah, like, and the cast is just dope. The cast is dope. I hope it ends up. Yeah, being Marvel good. BA definitely did their job, right? They hit it out of the park. So yeah, yeah. Up. I mean, for for a TV show, it is stacked. Um, but I mean, I guess that's every TV show these days. But yeah, anyways. So look, lots going on, lots to see. Some good, some bad. Check it out. Let's see what uh, happens in the next weeks and what people are watching. Yeah, I'll, I'll try to watch and and keep commenting on it. Paul, as always, thank you for all the breakdowns. And that's our show this week, folks. Make sure that you're subscribed to the podcast. Tell your friends. It's on Apple, Spotify, wherever you choose to listen. Write us a review. Check us out on Instagram, TikTok, at Better Call Paul, the podcast. Follow me on Twitter, at Mesh Lakani. Five stars, everyone. Give us five stars. <laughs> yeah, throw us some five stars, man. I mean, if you like the show, show us some love. Better Call Paul is produced and edited by Valentino Rivera and assistant producer Lisa Sanders. We'll see you next week. Thanks, everyone.